0: Good evening. The United States completes its pullout from Afghanistan, another suicide on Rikers Island. Mayor de Blasio calls for the courts to fully reopen, but legal aid attorneys say, where's he been? With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durianza with the WBAI News for Monday, August 30th, 2021. The United States completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan late today, ending America's longest war and closing a chapter in military history likely to be remembered for colossal failures, unfulfilled promises and a frantic final exit that cost the lives of more than 180 Afghans and 13 U.S. service members, some barely older than the war. Hours ahead of President Joe Biden's Tuesday deadline for shutting down a final airlift and thus ending the U.S. war, Air Force transport planes carried a remaining contingent of troops from Kabul Airport. Thousands of troops had spent a harrowing two weeks protecting a hurried and risky airlift of tens of thousands of Afghans, Americans and others seeking to escape a country once again ruled by Taliban militants. General McKenzie of CENTCOM
1: had this to say. Tonight's withdrawal signifies both the end of the military component of the evacuation but also the end of the nearly 20-year mission that began in Afghanistan shortly after September 11th 2001 It's a mission that brought Osama bin Laden to a just end along with many of his al-Qaeda co-conspirators and it was not it was not a cheap mission the cost was 2461 US service members and civilians killed and more than 20,000 who were injured sadly that includes 13 US service members who were killed last week by an ISIS-K suicide bomber. We honor their sacrifice today as we remember their heroic accomplishments. No words from me could possibly capture the full measure of sacrifices uh, and accomplishments of those who served, nor the emotions they're feeling at this moment. But I will say that I'm proud that both my son and I have been a part of it.
0: And that is General Kenneth McKenzie of CENTCOM.
1: In announcing the completion
0: of the evacuation and war effort, The general, who's head of central command, said the last planes took off from Kabul airport at 3.29 p.m. Washington time. That's the same as New York City or one minute before midnight in Kabul. He said a number of American citizens, likely numbering in the very low hundreds, were left behind and that he believes that they will be able to leave the country. We'll have more on this story later in the newscast. And a sequence of failures in New York City's subway system following a brief power outage disrupted half of the system for several hours and strayed at hundreds of passengers, according to Governor Kathy Hochul.
1: And a disruption of this magnitude can be catastrophic. And thank God, when you think about the time that this happened, it was a time of low ridership. It was on a weekend night, late at night. And I can only imagine how devastating this would have been for thousands of New Yorkers had this occurred during a morning commute like this morning.
0: And that's the scene as passengers were evacuated from subway cars stalled by a power glitch that apparently affected the subway signaling system. The unprecedented breakdown affected more than 80 trains on the subway system's numbered lines plus the L train from shortly after 9 p.m. Sunday to about 1.30 a.m. Governor Hochul said the city was lucky the incident occurred during the weekend. The restoration of service was delayed because passengers on two of the stuck trains walked out onto the tracks by themselves rather than waiting for rescuers from agencies, including the police and fire departments, to help them. The governor described the extent of the power outage.
1: It was a momentary outage that did go to the backup system. But when it tried to go back to normal, there was a surge, an unprecedented surge, that resulted in the subway losing signalization and communication ability. And it lost that between its command center and the trains throughout the system.
0: And Hochul said in her later news release that she's directed the MTA to retain two independent engineering firms to assist a thorough deep dive of what happened and make recommendations to ensure this does not occur again. Mayor de Blasio said it's important, too, to get to the bottom of what went wrong.
2: We had a challenge. Our emergency management team uh, was active from the beginning once we saw there was an issue with Con Ed that later became an issue with the subways. Uh, We are right now working with the state, working with Con Ed, working with the MTA to determine exactly what happened. It is not clear yet. A full investigation is going on. Our teams have all been working together since the time of this incident last night. And we've been coordinating closely with the MTA leadership, with the governor and her team. I spoke to the governor in detail this morning about the situation. Look, the good news is that we had a temporary situation. But we need to know more about it. We need to understand how this could happen and how to make sure it does not happen again. Uh, there were not, uh, thankfully, extensive home outages. But at the same time, a lot of subway riders were really inconvenienced and put into a really tough situation. And thank God everyone came out okay. There were no injuries. I want to really thank the men and women of the NYPD and the FDNY who went to rescue Those subway riders did an extraordinary job. We should never take this for granted. Wherever you are in New York City, in a time of trouble, the very best professionals, the very best first responders there to help. So they made sure that everyone got out safely. But again, we've got to figure out why this happened and make sure it does not happen again. We're working closely with the MTA. As I think everyone knows, the subways are back up and running. There are certainly still delays. Thank God the situation was contained and a uh, subway service is coming back uh, fully now. And Mayor de Blasio, he said subway service was back
0: to normal for the Monday morning commute. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. A Rikers Island prisoner apparently killed himself early today. Is the fifth death in city jails in nine months. Segundo Guayapa, 57, Died at about 1.30 a.m. in the North Infirmary Command, a jail with facilities dedicated to incarcerated people with medical issues. Guiapa had been on Rikers for 11 days since August 19th on $7,500 bail. He was arrested August 18th on a charge of second-degree strangulation. On August 10th, 25-year-old Brandon Rodriguez died by suicide. His mother, Tamara Carter, says she learned of his death. On Facebook. So, this is a, a difference for the city. It's an apparent change in policy by the Department of Corrections. In the past, the agency had confirmed the death only after receiving press inquiries. Melania Brown of the uh, hashtag halt Solitary campaign and Jails Action Coalition, and sister of the late Leilene Polanco, released the following statement. People in the city's jails are being locked alone in cells and denied food, health care and other basic needs, in addition to being subjected to surging rates of brutality by staff. After my sister died in solitary confinement on Rikers, the mayor promised real change. Yet he's doing nothing and more and more families are having to suffer the pain and torment our family continues to experience. Among those who died in Rikers custody are Robert Jackson, Thomas Carlo Camacho, Xavier Velasco, Wilson Diaz-Guzman, and Jose Mejia-Martinez. Meanwhile, Mayor de Blasio was asked today at his briefing about the city's court system, where cases are reportedly being delayed by COVID-19 restrictions.
2: You need consequences, and that has to pervade the entire uh, justice system. Whether it is something as horrible as a murder or gun violence, or whether it's other offenses, you need a culture of consequences. There needs to be justice, there needs to be fairness. We need to make sure the system works in a way that is not discriminatory, but we need consequences. That's the whole concept of the criminal justice system. If there are no trials, there are no consequences. So again, Andrea, what we're seeing is in the area of gun violence, we've seen some real improvement in the court system with those trials moving. But we are not seeing uh, trials moving in a whole host of other offenses, with a whole host of other offenses. And that's the mayor.
0: Tina Luongo is an attorney with legal aid. She says the Blasio gets it wrong.
3: No, the mayor is absolutely not correct. And as he should be well aware of by now, our courts have been open both virtually and in peer and, and throughout the pandemic and have gone back to in person appearances and to sort of link sort of this idea which is a wrong idea that the courts ever closed they never closed and it's absurd. The fact is that the public defenders of all of our organizations throughout New York City are working around the clock to represent people as zealously as we possibly can. The governor had for close to a year had executive orders that stalled and delayed trials and the handing over of discovery, those came back online. And yes, there is a backlog, and we're working toward it. We're working toward trying to find a way to have safe and meaningful, constitutionally valid trials for clients. The reality of the situation, though, is the mayor should start looking also as to why DCAS, DOC, NYPD can't actually provide safe courts. So the number of court staff that have tested positive since coming back and since the Delta variant has skyrocketed, many of them because they're unmasked. And many of them, even with the chief judge and OCA demanding masks, NYPD and DOC officers continue not to wear them and we have to report them daily. DCAS has failed to place HEPA filters into courthouses to create health and safety for people who are using the courts. So I would really hope that the mayor would look to his own agencies and and get them to do what is needed to make the courts safe and so that we can come fully back online. But he hasn't. He hasn't for over a year.
0: And Tina Longo is an attorney with Legal Aid, speaking with WBA earlier today. And... The United Nations Security Council voted Monday, that's today, to approve a resolution demanding that every effort be made to allow for the rapid and secure reopening of the Kabul airport and its surrounding area. The resolution offered by France, the UK and the United States cites the Taliban pledges that Afghans will be able to travel abroad and leave the country by both air or ground, including at the reopened and secured Kabul airport with no one preventing them from traveling. The vote was 13 in favor with two abstentions. As Russia and China. The Council also called for strengthened efforts to provide humanitarian assistance to Afghanistan and to allow for full and safe. Access to the country for aid groups. Houses and vehicles, meanwhile, were seen damaged in a neighborhood near Kabul's airport Sunday. That was yesterday, after the area was struck by an alleged drone strike as U.S. forces launched a what they call defensive military offensive in the Afghan capital. The U.S. said it carried out an attack at a residential compound against multiple suicide bombers from the local Islamic State affiliates, aiming to attack Kabul's international airport. Kabul's police claimed the offensive hit civilians and killed at least three children. The United States Central Command confirmed reports of civilian casualties following the strike, but it said it was still assessing the results of the attack. The Taliban have condemned the alleged drone strike, saying it had violated Afghanistan's sovereignty. And Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the United States representative to the United Nations. She had this to say after today's vote at the UN on the motion demanding the opening of the airport.
4: The U.N. Refugee Agency estimates that nearly a half million Afghans have been internally displaced this year alone. The World Food Program estimates that 14 million people in Afghanistan are at risk of starving without food assistance. And UNICEF has reported that COVID-19 vaccinations have dropped by 80% in recent weeks. Vital humanitarian assistance must flow to people in desperate need. President Biden has made clear that we will do what's necessary to defend our security and our people. And the entire international community is committed to ensuring that Afghanistan is never again a safe haven for terrorism. Through this resolution, the Security Council has also reiterated the vital importance of respect for the rights of Afghanistan's people, including its women, girls, and minorities. We will not waver on this point. It is imperative that the international community remain unified and resolute, including in holding the Taliban accountable for its commitments.
0: And that is. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the United States ambassador to the United Nations. In the aftermath of the attack on Karzai Airport, President Joe Biden had vowed to hunt down those responsible for the Kabul airport attack, with his press secretary Jennifer Sackey explaining, I think he made clear yesterday that he does not want them to live on the earth anymore. A professor of international law at the University of Illinois, Francis Boyle, says those are the wrong type of statements because – The real criminals are the United States, and the entire enterprise in Afghanistan was illegal. He says retaliation is not self-defense under international law, but only more aggression. He spoke with WBAI. I
5: support support President Biden's decision to uh, pull out. I didn't vote for President Biden or President Trump. I'm a political independent. I do hope we can get out of there tomorrow without more loss of lives by... uh, US military personnel. That's my uh, hope and prayer. There could be some more terrorist attacks between now and then, for sure. As for the relationship with the uh, Taliban government, well, right now, we do not extend formal de jure diplomatic recognition. That is why President Biden sent the uh, head of the CIA over there to negotiate with the uh, Taliban and not the Secretary of State. He did not want to extend formal de jure diplomatic recognition. But obviously, we have relations with the Taliban on a de facto basis. And I would hope we'll have to see how this goes tomorrow, that President Biden could use the carrot of uh, de jure diplomatic recognition of the Taliban government and U.S. economic assistance and loans to ameliorate that regime. We do have contacts with them on a de facto basis. Certainly the military does. That's been reported quite extensively. And the CIA always has contacts with these
0: people. What about Russia and China? What are their interests in this?
5: Right now, Russia and China want to stabilize the situation in Afghanistan. It is not their interest to have all heck breaking out over there and terrorism and everything like that. The Chinese foreign minister did meet with a Taliban delegation. China has indicated they are prepared to give them de jure uh, recognition and substantial economic assistance but they don't want terrorism originating out of Afghanistan and directed towards China, which does have a border with Afghanistan. As for uh, Russia, President Putin has not yet indicated he is prepared to extend de jure diplomatic recognition. On the other hand, he too has said he's willing to work with China to try to stabilize that situation. Russia certainly does not want Afghanistan to be used as a base for the jumping off of terrorists into the immediately surrounding states there in Central Asia that would only have
0: an impact on Russia. What about Pakistan then, and by extension India? What are their interests in this? Pakistan has been supporting
5: the Taliban all along. This is quite a victory for them. They have very close relations uh, with the uh, Taliban it's a defeat for India. Their intelligence services and diplomats have already left. They're that stance. Who were
0: the winners and who are the losers in this?
5: Well, I've opposed this war ever since I debated Bill O'Reilly on September 13th, 2001, two days after the terrorist attacks. From my perspective, this is a catastrophic defeat, of American uh, imperialism and foreign policy that's right up there with the uh, Vietnam War. We'll be dealing with that in a manner that we dealt with the defeat in Vietnam.
0: What do you predict?
5: The United States government learned all of the wrong lessons about Vietnam. Maybe under Biden, they'll learn some better lessons and try to Stabilize that situation in Afghanistan and realize that this whole war on uh, terrorism for the last 20 years has been a catastrophic failure. But we'll see what lessons they drawn here.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. Anything like that? I
5: think this is the right decision, despite the terrible loss of these 13 service people.
0: But it could happen again. There could be more between now and tomorrow.
5: There certainly could, yes. It's an extremely dangerous situation. As you saw last night, there are also missile barrages on the airport, and there could be some more terrorist attacks before we pick up and get out of there, right?
0: So it's a very dangerous situation. Francis Boyle is professor of international law at the University of Illinois. And turning to Louisiana, Hurricane Ida's 10 to 12 feet of storm surge, the highest the water has ever been, knocked out all eight transmission lines that deliver power to New Orleans. Ida left the entire city without electricity as it pushed through on Sunday and early Monday with winds that reached 150 miles per hour. Some of the hardest hit areas won't see power restored for weeks. The power company, New Orleans-based Entergy, says it's working to provide backup power for water and sewer services, and the city says it's using its own generators at drainage pumping stations but it's not clear how long those efforts can continue u.s president joe biden declared a major disaster in louisiana he ordered federal assistance to bolster recovery efforts in more than two dozen storm-stricken parishes and in jefferson parish a large multi-agency search and rescue mission is underway to deliver trap residents to safety that's according to sheriff joe lopinto we've got a lot of water that's Really never been in these places before, he added. I talked with one resident who lived down there and never had water in their house and actually had eight feet last night. And finally, congressional Democrats representing New York City are urging Governor Kathy Hochul to take the necessary actions within her power to extend the state's eviction moratorium, which is set to expire at the end of August. In the letter sent To Hochul on Saturday, the U.S. House lawmakers wrote that with the sharp rise in COVID-19 cases, the beginning of the school year and continued issues associated with the global pandemic – It's imperative that New Yorkers can stay in their homes. New York State has been slow to distribute the rental assistance funding, including the recent federal pandemic relief packages. As of August 23rd, only $203 million of roughly $2 trillion allocated for New York has been paid out, and that's according to state data. Another $600 million has been obligated. Reverend Frank Morales is an anti-eviction activist. He's planning a protest for tomorrow at the offices of the city marshal, who most likely will be getting a lot of work. If evictions resume,
1: we'll have a demonstration tomorrow at 109 West 38th Street, which is the offices of city marshal. And then we're marching to uh, Governor Hochul's office at 633 3rd Avenue. We'll be at the governor's office tomorrow. That's Tuesday, the 31st at 2 p.m. And we're demanding that the governor and the uh, state legislature extend the eviction moratorium. We're amidst a severe health crisis, and this is really a matter of survival on the part of hundreds of thousands of tenants in half a million tenants in New York City who are uh, in arrears. So we'll be there tomorrow. We're calling people from all around town to come out and make a stand in opposition to these evictions and call for an extension of the uh, eviction moratorium, canceling of rent debt, and begin to allow folks to stabilize in their homes and in their communities and avoid even deepening health crisis, which is concurrent with an eviction crisis.
0: What's the reason for the choice
1: of the marshal's office? Evictions take place when marshals and police forcibly violate a person's home. We're beginning our protest tomorrow at a marshal whose office is on West 38th Street, who is notorious. This is a very money-making situation with these marshals and so forth. They get forth. paid to do so these evictions, the marshals? They get paid to do these evictions, yeah. It's a million-dollar industry. A lot of these marshals are, are doing quite well. We're beginning there, but then the, the key target will be the governor's office on 3rd Avenue at between 40 and 41st What Street, do you expect, the governor? About 2 p.m. That she is able to call together the legislature and enact a, an extension of the moratorium, minimally, we're calling for June 2022, but minimally extended so to allow the funds that have already been allocated by the state to be distributed. Just a very small percentage of those funds have been distributed to the roughly 200,000 people who have applied, but um, at least extend the moratorium, the state moratorium, until those funds that are already, have already been allocated are dispersed. Reverend Frank
0: Morales is an anti-eviction activist. On Thursday, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the Biden administration's latest iteration of a temporary ban on evictions at the national level enacted earlier this month. Hochul blasted the ruling as appalling and insensitive. Hochul on Friday said she was in talks with state legislative leaders to call a special session to address the expiring moratorium in New York. A vote extending the ban could be held after the state's moratorium officially lapses, but that's not expected to have a major effect on on tenants at risk of eviction. And that's some of the news for Monday, August 30th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.